listening to audio from Community Bible Church. If you would like to find out more information about us, please visit us at cbcsavannah.com. We're going to be in Exodus chapter 12 for a few moments this morning and, and into 13. I was watching uh, Nemo again with my daughter this week, and there's this great scene at the end after the credits and everything, you know, the cut scenes and the fish that were in the tank at the dentist office, you know, all those fish, uh, they kind of roll across the street in these bags and they, they fall into the water and they're sitting there, you know, their dream was to be free. All they had known their whole life is sitting in the fish tank, right? And they're always dreaming of getting to the ocean and getting to the ocean and they're finally in the ocean and the big blowfish says, well, now what? And then he just cuts out. It's like, yeah, now what? Uh, that's kind of where Israel is when we pick up today. Their whole lives, they've been thinking about freedom, dreaming about freedom, but all they know is slavery. All they know is the paganism that been, they've been influenced by and surrounded. That's all they've known their entire existence. There's, no, there's only one person in the whole nation of Israel that's ever experienced any type of freedom. His name's Moses, because he grew up in Pharaoh's house, Right? And then he got to go be a shepherd for 40 years. So nobody knows what freedom is like. And, and what we've seen the first 12 chapters is God is, is freeing his people. But there's a change in the book now. Where now God is going to take this people who is freed and he's going to start giving them direction. He's going to start leading them into being a free people. Right? So we're going to see that for the rest of the book where he's guiding them and, and setting them apart and teaching them what it means to be his people, how they're going to point other nations to him as the one true God, how they're gonna be distinct. And it really is a now what for the people of Israel. In fact, Moses himself has admitted when he was talking to Pharaoh, remember Pharaoh's like, well, do you, need, you just leave your stuff and leave your kids and leave your sheep? He's like, we can't do that. We don't even know what we're gonna be doing. We don't even know, we just know we're going. Even Moses doesn't know. So there's truly this now what moment and what God is gonna be doing over the rest of the book is telling them this is what. And, and today we're gonna see really two just big ideas I wanna hit quickly for us. The first two things he's gonna now what with them as they are going to be a free people. So we're gonna be in chapter 12 verses 29 through 13, 16. And, and the same direction, really, that he gives them, even though this is Old Testament, this is Old Covenant, there's some principles that he gives them that he is gonna give to us as well because God is doing the same thing. So where we've been, where we kind of left off is God has instituted the Passover. He's instituted the second feast, which is the Feast of Unleavened Bread. And we saw these two things last week. And the, there's a bigger idea there that these things point to Jesus, the Passover lamb, and it points to really now the Feast of Unleavened Bread, the picture of the, that sin has been removed and we're to live an unleavened lifestyle. Uh, and what he does at the end of chapter 12 and 13, it's kind of, kind of puzzling a little bit because what he does is he repeats himself again. Now God repeats himself often through the scripture, but he usually waits a few chapters. He's going to, he, he already instituted Passover, he instituted Feast of Unleavened Bread. You're like, okay, I got it. But he does it again in the same chapter. He repeats and reiterates. And when God repeats himself in the Bible, it's kind of like a parent. Parents, you get this. When you say, take the trash out. And then you say it again like 30 seconds later. Remember I said to take the trash out, right? When you repeat yourself, it, it means, okay, pay attention. Pay attention. So God is trying to, to draw their attention. And here's why. He is going to be, what he, what he, how he's gonna develop them and, and make them his distinct people. He's going to be weaving into the fabric of their lives certain things, certain uh, a rhythm, so to speak, 
uh, in their calendar, in their lives, so that they remember. He's trying to, to bring a people who remember and so you're going to see this idea, we've seen it, remembrance, remember, remember. And so he's going to weave these things into their, their regular lives so they cannot forget what he has done. So let's pick up in verse 29 uh, where we left off. And so the, the, the Passover lamb has been sacrificed, the blood has been put on the doors, and at midnight the Lord struck down all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, from firstborn of Pharaoh who sat on the throne to the firstborn of the captive who was in the dungeon, and all the firstborn of the livestock. And Pharaoh rose up in the night he and all his servants and all the Egyptians, and there was a great cry in Egypt, for there was not a house where someone had not, was not dead. This is a tragic verse. It just is. There's a heaviness to it. Judgment has fallen, and everyone is suffering. And so Pharaoh summons Moses and Aaron by night, which is interesting because he told them, you're never gonna see my face again. If you see my face again, you're gonna die. Well, he's seeing their face again. He's not keeping his word. He's actually summoning them and he says to them, up, go out from among my people, both of you and the people of Israel, and go serve the Lord as you have said. Take your flocks, your herds, as you have said, and be gone, and bless me also. So this one who is considered deity, who is, his word is final, he's gone back in his word, and now he's the one whose deity is asking the true God to bless him as they go. And it's not just him that get, wants everyone out. The Egyptians were urgent with the people to send them out of the land in haste, for they said, we shall all be dead so the people took their dough before it was leaven, their kneading bowls being bound up in their cloaks on their shoulders. And the people of Israel had also done as Moses told them, for they had asked the Egyptians for silver and gold and jewelry and clothing. And the Lord had given the people favor in the sight of Egyptians so that they let them have what they asked. They, thus they plundered the Egyptians. So they're getting the riches of Egypt on their way out. These people who were the servants, these people who were treated harshly, these people who were killed are now asking, can I have that, can I have that, can I have that? And they're like, yes, just go. Get out. We want you gone. And so they journeyed from Ramesses to Succoth, about 600,000 men, which estimates are about, if there's 600,000 men, it's probably about 2 million people-ish, give or take, besides women and children. A mixed multitude also went up with them. We've seen this. It's not just the nation of Israel. There's some Egyptians. There's probably some people that are living in Egypt. There's probably, and there's probably multiple reasons. There's probably some Egyptians who are following Yahweh because they're like, the, our gods are fake. This is a true God. There's probably people who are just like, we just need to get out of town because this place is, is, is just destroyed. So just an opportunity or, or they're fearful or they're just like bandwagon folks, whatever. But there's a bunch of people, a mixed multitude that is leaving with them, right? And they went up with livestock, flocks, and herds. Verse 39, and they baked unleavened cakes of the dough that they had brought out of Egypt for it was not leavened because they were thrust out of Egypt and could not wait, nor had they prepared any provisions for themselves. The time the people of Israel lived in Egypt was 430 years. And at the end of 430 years, on the very day, all the hosts of the Lord went out from the land of Egypt. And notice verse 42, it was a night of watching by the Lord to bring them out of the land of Egypt. So the same night is a night of watching, kept to the Lord by all the people of Israel throughout their generations. And so you see this idea again, throughout the generations, this is a night, it's special. We're gonna celebrate it every year. We're gonna remember, it's a night of watching. God is weaving into the fabric of just their normal calendar, 
right? Just like we have. We got spring break, part of our calendar. Summer break, part of our calendar. Thanksgiving, these things we are woven in. He's weaving these things into their normal life. And you're gonna see this throughout the rest of the book. He's gonna have commandments. He's gonna have just even weekly, a Sabbath, a day where they do nothing. They just chill on the lawn chair, enjoy life, uh, celebrate God. It's gonna be part of their weekly rhythm. There's gonna be a yearly rhythm where seven feasts, three of them they have to go to Jerusalem. There's gonna be every seven year uh, rhythm where the seventh year is a year of jubilee, I mean a year, a year of rest for the land. There's gonna be a 50 year where there's a year of jubilee. Just he's, he's weaving into who they are, what he has done so that they remember that there's this new identity, remembering who God is, remembering who we are. And so he Jumps back to the Passover, verse 43. The Lord said to Moses and Aaron, this is the statute of Passover. It's a Hebrew word that comes from the root to carve in. So if you can picture a knife carving into it or something that's set in stone, we would say, right? This is, this is carved into who you are. This is Passover. And here's the big, big rule. No foreigner eats it. The word foreigner is not necessarily ethnic in nature. It, it means no outsider, in essence. He's saying Passover is in essence a family affair. It's a, it's a insider deal. It's not just kind of like everybody. It is for the family, a family meal. It is an exclusive deal. And he's gonna give some caveats. Verse 44. Every slave or every servant that is bought for money may eat of it after you have circumcised him. So if you have a servant you got from somewhere else, he's living with you, he's part of your house, he's going to live with you uh, for the rest of his life, he's able, she is able to partake if they're circumcised. We'll come back to that. No foreigner or hired worker may eat of it. Foreigner or hired worker is like a, would be like a migrant worker, someone who's there for a season, they're just there for a job, they're there for three months, six months, whatever, but they're not planning on staying. They're just in for a little bit, they're on a student visa or whatever, but then they're leaving. They cannot partake because they're not part of the family. Because this is something that is eaten in one house. You should not take any of the flesh outside the house. You should not break any of its bones. We looked at that last week, why? Because Jesus' bones were not broken. Passover should not be broken. And all the congregation underline that. Everybody keeps it. This is not like, well, I don't really, you know, Thanksgiving's such a busy time. We're just gonna skip it this year. Christmas is so busy. We're just gonna go to the Bahamas and get out of Dodge and just whatever. No, everybody does it. If you're part of the congregation of Israel, this is not optional. You celebrate the Passover. There's a night of watching for everyone. It's a day of remembrance for everybody, right? No, no, no excuses, if a stranger sojourns with you and wants to keep the Passover of the Lord, let all his males be circumcised and he may come near and keep it. He shall be as a native, but no uncircumcised person. They're, again, if someone is not Hebrew, maybe they're Syrian, maybe they're Egyptian, maybe they're Greek, maybe they're whatever, they are welcome to celebrate the Passover. Anybody who says, I'm gonna be with these people, I'm gonna live here, this is gonna be my people now, they are welcome to celebrate Passover. There's only one caveat Right, And you've seen it several times here and he even highlights it in verse 49. There should be one law for the native and one law for the stranger who sojourns among you. There's, anybody is welcome at the Passover meal. Anyone is welcome at this family meal. The only caveat is this. You have to come to God on his terms. You have to identify with Yahweh the way he says. And what he, the way he says in the old covenant is you come through the rite of circumcision. This is a outward mark that you are part of the people of God. It is the sign of 
the covenant. And we saw Clint preach several weeks ago when Moses fails to do this to his own son. It's, it's a significant thing for God in the old covenant, right? That you come on his terms and you come through this, this right which he gave through Abraham and, and was consistent through the people of God, really through the New Testament. And anyone is welcome. Anyone is welcome. You just have to come on God's terms. And this is what we see throughout the rest of the Old Testament. Several people who are not Hebrews, we're gonna see Rahab and Joshua. She is a, she's, she's a prostitute from Jericho. She comes to become part of the family of God. Her family is joined with his family. You're gonna see later down a, a lady named Ruth who is a Moabite, who is not of the people of God. She comes, her family comes into uh, the family of God. And these people not just become part of the family, they become part of the messianic line. So what we see is God's missional heart even in the Old Testament. Anybody is welcome but you gotta come on my terms. You gotta come on my terms, right? And it's, you can't say, well, it's not fair. One law for the stranger, one law for the people of God. It's the same. It is fair. Everyone comes in the same way. And here's the first thing we see that God is setting them free for, really. It's, it's right up front and it's consistent throughout the Old Testament that God is making them part of something special, a, a community, a group of people who are in covenant with each other and covenant with God. He has freed them to be in covenant community, right? This is a special people with shared values and shared rhythms of life and a shared identity uh, with a shared purpose that we are pointing people back to the one true God. That is what he is doing and he's teaching them. He's giving them direction. He's helping them understand that uh, and anybody can be part of it. As long as you come on his terms. As long as you come on his terms. And where that fits for us, living on this side of Calvary, is this. God is doing the exact same thing. He has freed us from the bondage of sin to do what? To make us part of something, a covenant community. A group of people with a shared set of values and a shared set of rhythms and a shared purpose. And in the Old Testament, it was the nation of Israel and in the New Testament, it's called what? The church, the body of Christ, the family of God, the bride of Christ, the ecclesia, the gathering, right? It's his covenant community. A group of people share common father, common values, common purpose. And what's the key? You gotta come on his terms, just like in the old covenant. Right? And it's not just some individual thing. It's not just it's you, God set you free so you can go do this deal. No, God set you free so you can be part of what he is doing. What is he doing? He's doing the church, his people. And here's where it plugs into what we're doing today. This is where I think it's, it's God's providence that uh, we're in this text today. What has been traditionally for 2,000 years, the entrance point for the people of God as they come into the covenant community. For 2,000 years, even with different modes and different you know, theologies of what it means, baptism has been for 2,000 years the outward sign of what is going on inwardly. It has been the entry point for membership in the covenant community. Whether it's you know, sprinkling or whatever mode, it's traditionally this has been what has happened. So in the early church, someone comes to faith, what do they do? They baptize them, right? And, and so... It's fitting that today we're celebrating baptism as baptism we come to this text. Jesus says what? Go and make disciples. How do we do it? We baptize and we teach, right? You become part of the family of God. 
then you get baptized. It's not that baptism or circumcision actually made you the people of God. It was a response of faith in what God had said. And so I'm responding to what God has said. The water doesn't cleanse anyone. Circumcision didn't cleanse anybody, right? It was their faith. And then because of their faith, now I have an outward marker that I belong to God, right? Which is why we celebrate, right? It's a celebration. These people are saying, I am in the local church. I am in Christ. I am cleansed from my sin. I am part of the family now. And what happens when, when someone becomes part of the family? Typically, unless you really don't like that person, right? But typically when there's a new member of the family, what happens? Right? We celebrate. So when the kids come to, to the parents and say, we're pregnant, you're gonna be a grandpa. Typically there's like, woo! And that's why we have all these craziness with gender reveal parties and you know, planes being brought down because someone shot it down with a blue canister. We have all sorts of craziness going on. Why? Because it is a celebration. And then when that baby's born, everyone's excited. When there's a marriage and someone now is part of this family, it's, it's exciting. There's a celebration. That's why baptism is a celebration. And here's what I want you to see, is that God has instituted in the old covenant, but also in the new covenant, just rhythms in our lives to point us back to what he has done that are meant to be a celebration. I know there's this view that God, especially in the old Testament, was just miserable, angry, mean God, and just wanted people to be scared all the time. No, he, he gave them feasts where they would come to Jerusalem that they would pig out on pork chops and, and, and ox and they'd eat for a week and they'd celebrate and they would remember what God had done because he's a God who wants us to remember and to celebrate. So he's given us in the New Testament the same idea, baptism, a celebration of what God has done. That someone has been united with Christ in his death, burial, and resurrection, which is why we do immersion because it pictures the death burial and resurrection when we bring them out of the water of what Christ has done. And these people are coming before you this morning in boldness. You don't understand, it's not easy for people to get in front of y'all. It's easy to sneak in the back with a cup of coffee, hide out. For them to come forward in front of everybody, right? And to stand awkwardly in a tub of cold, lead-filled, fluoride-filled Savannah water. It takes some boldness. But what they're saying, and they, what they want you to know is, I'm one of you. I am family. I'm part of this deal. I'm in Christ. I am not ashamed of the gospel. And what we do is, just like that newborn, just like that new family member, we rejoice. And it, not only we rejoice with them, what, is it, it, what does it do for us? What is, what is the intent for God? It's, it's woven into what we do on Sundays. It reminds us. That was me at one point. It reminds me of what God did for me. That's why it's good stuff. That's why we celebrate when this happens. I was in darkness, now I'm in light. I was an orphan, now I have a family, right? I was under condemnation, now I am loved. I was enslaved, now I am free. I was far off, now I've been brought near. All these things. And so when they, when they get in there and when they go under and they come out, you celebrate because you got a new brother and sister who are identifying with you. It's not, they're not made that when they go in the water, but they're proclaiming that to you. And that's why we rejoice with them and encourage them. And it is a reminder too, 
God puts us part of the, the universal church. When you come to faith, you're part of the big, big C church. For all those who, who have come to faith the last 2,000 years, who've been part of the church. But it also reminds us, hey, God wants us to be part of the, the little C church, too, the little expression of the big church, those local churches, like this one's and other good ones in this town. And, and it, it's your calling. God has saved you so that you would get plugged in, that you would run the race set before you with a group of folks just like this, if not this one, another one, where you do life together, where you celebrate together, where you, you celebrate the same rhythms and you remember together, you weep together, you, you uh, mourn together, all these things. That's what you're supposed to be doing. God has called you to be part of the local church. Why? Because you're part of the universal church. And it's often said, people will say, well, I don't need to be, go to church to be a Christian. Well, maybe not, I guess, uh, legalistically, yeah, that's probably the letter of the law, but I don't know someone who can walk with Christ faithfully outside of his local church because you're not meant to. It's meant to be done together. We're not called individually, we're called to be part of the church, right? So that's the first thing he's doing. He's calling them into covenant community. Quickly, chapter 13. The Lord said to Moses, consecrate to me all the firstborn that's set apart, dedicate, it's the word, it's rooted in the word holiness, the Hebrew word, whatever is the first to open the womb among the, the people of Israel, both man and beast, is mine. And then he jumps back into the Feast of Unleavened Bread. Interesting. Then Moses said to the people, remember this day, or again, remember, in which you came out of Egypt, out of the house of slavery, for by a strong hand the Lord brought you out from this place. No leavened bread shall be eaten. Today is the month of Abib, you are going out. And when the Lord brings you into the land of Canaanites and Hittites and Amorites and Hivites and the Jebusites, which he swore to your fathers to give you a land flowing with milk and honey, you shall keep this service in this month. Seven days you shall eat unleavened bread and on the seventh day there shall be a feast to the Lord. We looked at that this week, last week. Unleavened bread shall be eaten for seven days. No leavened bread shall be seen with you and no leaven shall be seen with you in all your territory. You shall tell your son on that day, it is because of what the Lord did, I love this, for me, and it's singular. Yes, we're, we're not called to be individuals, but salvation is individual, it is personal, right? This is what God did for me when I came out of Egypt. And it shall be to you as a sign on your hand and a memorial between your eyes that the law of the Lord may be in your mouth. For with a strong hand, the Lord has brought you out of Egypt. And you shall therefore keep the statute at its appointed time from year to year. Again, weaving into the rhythm of lives, this rhythm. So when you're celebrating the Feast of Unleavened Bread and your little boy comes up to you and says, Dad, can I have a PB&J? It's Tuesday, son. No, we cannot have a PB&J this week. But I love PB&J. Yes, I know. But to this week we eat unleavened bread. Why do we do that, Dad? Because this is what God did for me. And, and he saved me and we, when we got out of Egypt, we couldn't eat leaven. And I'm, I'm remembering this and I'm teaching you, God saved me. Remember, it's about this rhythm of constantly being on your lips. In fact, the, the Pharisees actually took this passage literally so that they would hang these things around their heart and around their wrists with scripture verses, which is not what God's intent was. The point was, it should just be regular in your, in your rhythm of life. You don't have to hang a, a, a set of verses around your neck to be more spiritual. It just should be part of who you are, Right? And then when the Lord, verse 11, brings you into the land of the Canaanites as he swore to you and your fathers and shall give it to you, you shall set apart to the Lord all the first that opens the womb, all the firstborn of your animals that are males before, uh, uh, males shall be the Lord's. Every firstborn 
Of a donkey, you shall redeem with a lamb. Or if it not, you will redeem it, you will break its neck. Every firstborn of men among your sons, you shall redeem. And when the time comes, your son asks you, what does this mean? You shall say to him, by a strong hand, the Lord brought us out of Egypt from the house of slavery. For when Pharaoh stubbornly refused to let us go, the Lord killed all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, both the firstborn of man, the firstborn of animals. Therefore, I sacrifice to the Lord all the males that open, first opened the womb, but all the firstborn of my sons I redeem. Uh, and then he says again, it should be a mark in your frontlets of your eyes. Again, remember, this is party rhythm. What's going on here? He basically says, when you get to the land, everything that's born first is mine. So you're offered as a sacrifice. So if it's a clean animal, like a lamb, and I did a little Googling this week, a little research on lambing, as it's called, right? Apparently, your average lamb has between one and three lammies, or whatever you call them, ewes, whatever, right? And so the idea is the first male that is brought forth, that male is offered as a sacrifice back to God, right? Because they're a clean animal. Same thing with oxen, same thing with goats. These are clean animals. And if it's a donkey, a donkey is not a clean animal, Okay, it's not an offerable animal. So what you can do is you can either bring in a lamb to substitute for that donkey or you can break the donkey's neck and kill it. Now, what about your firstborn sons? God obviously doesn't want child sacrifice. So with your firstborn son, what do you do? You go and redeem that son. You go to the priest and the book of Numbers unpacks how you do this. You give him five shekels of silver, which I don't know how much that's worth, to be honest. Maybe it's 10 bucks, I don't know. 10 bucks a kid, whatever. But five shekels of silver, you go and you redeem your son back. Which is why, by the way, Jesus, remember when he's in the temple when he's just a baby and old, old boy just snatches him out of his mama's hands and holds him up and prophesies over him? That's what they're up in Jerusalem doing. They're offering, he's the firstborn, they're giving their, their offering to the priest, redeeming the firstborn. They're, they're giving uh, offerings for her purity because after birth she had to go through her ceremonial rite because she was considered ceremonial unclean. They're doing everything according to the law. But that's why they're in Jerusalem. Um, so, so what's the, what's the big idea? What, what does that have to do with us? Here, here's, here's what God is doing for them and us, right? He is freeing us to be what we call consecrated or set apart. The idea of the first thing being offered, the first represents everything, represents the whole. So when they bring the first lamb or the first ox or the first son, it's saying, it's all yours, God. I'm just showing you it's all yours by giving you off the top, by giving you the best. This is why when we say that you're to be generous and give, we don't give, ideally, after I've paid the mortgage, I've paid the car, I've paid my credit card, I got my gym membership, oh, I got 37 cents left. Here you go, God. Why? Because it shows value. I pay $49 a month for my Peloton and I give God 49 cents. Where's my value? So what do we do? We say, hey, whatever you give, it should be off the top. It should be the first thing. Why? Because it shows God that I value you above all and everything is yours. And so I'm showing you that I trust you with everything by giving you the top. That's the idea. So I'm giving God first. I'm giving him best. And it pictures, that means everything is yours because God really doesn't need your money and he doesn't need your goat, but he wants you. And the idea is you are to live a consecrated life, a set apart life that you say, here I am. Not just 10% of me. Not, I wrote my $157.13 check because I give 10%, exactly. It's not that I give my first 10 minutes of the day to God. It's not that I give the first day of the week only, church day, and then everything else is mine. No, it's I give me. 
I am yours, right? And, and here's was this verse in, in 2 Timothy I came across this week. I thought, man, I wonder if Paul is actually looking at this, thinking about this, because this is what he says. In a great house, there are not only vessels of gold and silver, but also wood and clay, some for honorable use, some for dishonorable. Therefore, if anyone cleanses himself from what is dishonorable, he will be a vessel of honor, useful, set apart, it's holy, useful to the master of the house, ready for every good work. And, and those of you who are married probably get this. You probably have some china or some silver that was given to you on your wedding day. We have silver that was my great aunt's that's like 80 years old and it comes out once, twice a year because it's special. It comes out at Easter, comes out at Thanksgiving. You know, on those special occasions, we bring it out because it's valuable and I don't want the kids using it for their Fruit Loops or scooping peanut butter out and just licking it and, you know, in the den and here, dog, you know, do that because it's honorable, but what does he say? If you cleanse yourself, you make yourself a, a, a vessel of honor. What is the Feast of Unleavened Bread about? It's about cleansing, right? It's significant that he talks about cleansing and an honor. And, and, and that's what he's talking, he just talked about here. He talked about Feast of Unleavened Bread, cleansing. And now he says, now set yourself apart. After you've been cleansed, now you dedicate yourself as a vessel of honor. Here I am, Lord. Use me. I'm, I'm, the, I'm the fine china, I'm the crystal, I'm the silver. I wanna be useful, I wanna be ready for every good work. See, that's the pattern that, that baptism pictures. I'm cleansed, now I'm useful, I'm washed, I'm one of the people of God, now I want you to use me. And, and the idea, I think, for us is when you see these folks come, out, come into the water and out of the water this morning, it's not just their testimony, it's yours. It's a reminder, I did that. And then how am I doing? Am I, am, I living a, am I living a set apart life? Or am I a 10% this, 10% this dichotomized life? And it's meant to remind you and say, yeah, I need to get back on this deal. I've been kind of slack, right? Uh, I am supposed to live. Here's, here's the big idea. You are supposed to live as a possession. As a possession, we don't like that language, possession, unless we're the possessor. I have no problem with it being my car. I have no problem with being my yard, my job, my bank account, right? My yard, I fertilize it, I water it, I cut it, it's mine. My car, I clean it, I pay the taxes, I pay the gas, I, it's mine, right? We don't, we don't have any problem with ownership if we're the owner, but when we are the owned, whoa, I'm my own. But God says this, do you not know your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit whom you have from God? You are not your own. You're actually not. That you were bought with a price. And the result is now glorify God in your body. You've been redeemed. Your debt, the, the certificate of your debt was canceled. How? Jesus nailed it to the cross. It wasn't just canceled, it was paid. And so now you were bought. And he says, now live in a way that you're a vessel of honor. Set yourself apart, useful to the master. That's what these people are reminding. They're doing that. They're saying, I wanna be useful to the master. And they're trying to remind you, are you useful to the master, right? It's the encouragement from them. And I think, again, if we would stop seeing it, this idea of possession as negative, we see it as negative. Oh, what if it's a positive thing? 
What if it's, I get to be God's, I get to be used by God, I get to have him put me on some sort of adventure that I don't know where it's going, but I trust him because he's good, he's given himself for me, he died for me, he was buried for me, he rose again for me, I can trust him. And so they're reminding you as well as celebrating what they've decided. Hey, go all in. What have you got to lose? Right? That's what God is calling us to. It's a reminder of what God has done. Right? So he's freed them. He's freed them to be part of a covenant community and he's freed them to be consecrated. And he's freed you as well. And so we celebrate Celebrate what they are doing, celebrate what he is doing, celebrate what has been done for you. So celebrate like a free people, rejoice and be reminded, hey, is this where I'm at right now? Let me pray and we're gonna have, see a video, just a couple testimonies. We didn't have, we don't have time to obviously hear all. I think there's 15 or so, 14 or so folks today being baptized, but uh, we'll see a couple testimonies on a video and then we will celebrate with them this morning. Let me pray. Father, Thank you for those who have come. Thank you for those who are reminding us what you have done and reminding uh, of what we need to do. That we were dead, now we are alive. And we are to now walk in newness of life because we've been united with Christ in his death, burial, and resurrection. Uh, and so maybe some of us haven't been doing that this morning. Stir, up, stir us up by way of reminder. We need to be reminded. This needs to be a part of who we are, the celebration of what you have done part of the rhythm of our lives, part of what we talk about, part of what we think about, because uh, you are setting us apart as your people uh, to glorify your name. It's in Christ's name I pray, amen.